0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at DeRoshi-Meyer.org Welcome to all of you.
1: It is such a joy for me to be back teaching. We've spent the last two weeks looking at how Jesus' Bible was put together. This is an Old Testament survey, not just generally, but specifically, a survey of Jesus' Bible. And that means that I'm approaching the survey in an, through the arrangement of the Hebrew Old Testament rather than our English Old Testaments. And we've seen testament in the New Testament. That's a lot of testament. We've seen witness in the last quarter of our Bible that we call the New Testament. We've seen witness there that Jesus' Bible was structured according to law, prophets, writings. That the biggest book in those writings was the Psalms, and that Jesus' Bible began with Genesis and ended with Chronicles. So we've covered that for two weeks, and this week we're just going to begin summarizing so what? So what? So you see on my diagram up here, this is my attempt to summarize all the message of Scripture in something that you could draw on a napkin in 30 seconds. And I've done it. When somebody has asked me, so what do you do? Give me a second. And I scribble it down. Here it is. Here it is. So, everything in the Bible is held together within a wheel. Everything that happens in Scripture happens within this wheel. You ask, what is it about? What is the frame? The frame is the kingdom of God. This is what it's about. The context of everything is a kingdom context where God rules over God's people in God's land for God's glory, ultimately through Jesus. Not only is there a frame, there's a form. It's like the spokes of the wheel. What holds it together? And that is an old covenant and a new covenant, an Old Testament and a New Testament. And these testaments are structured according to a three-part pattern. In the Old Testament, there's the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. In the Law, the Old Covenant is established. In the Prophets, the Old Covenant is enforced. In the Writings, the Old Covenant is enjoyed. Then we move into the New Testament, and the New Covenant is established in the Gospels. The New Covenant is enforced in the book of Acts and Paul's letters. The New Covenant is celebrated through joy and suffering in the General Epistles and Revelation. Savior, in the first part, Older New Covenant established. Sovereign, Older New Covenant enforced. Satisfier, Older New Covenant enjoyed. It's our Scriptures There's a form that's given to them. The frame is the kingdom of God. The form is through covenant. All of it is to one end. The glory of God. Everything God does is for His glory. He alone can do that. Because He is God, it is right for Him to seek His own glory. If He was seeking the glory of something else, He would stop being God. It is necessary for God to live for His ultimate glory. But it's also the most loving thing that He could do for us, because in His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not only is it loving because we get joy, God's the only Savior. So if you've entered into this room today with pain, He alone is the answer. So when He calls, look to me, look to me, He's going to be exalted as our helper, and we're going to receive the help. We are loved. He is praised. That's how it's supposed to work. All of it for God's glory. Frame God's kingdom. Form through covenant. Focus for His glory. And the fulcrum that holds it all together. Everything coming to it. Everything flowing from it. There is no fulfillment in Scripture apart from what's at the hub. Jesus the Messiah. This is what it's all about. So now we ask the question, so what? Why is it important? I have four, I think four, four reasons why this is important. Number one, the Bible presents itself not as a shelf of of numerous fabrics, but as a unified, intentionally woven quilt that's been stitched together by a master designer. We are called to delight in the quality, the texture, the color of every individual bolt of fabric. That is, every book counts. And we're supposed to look at it and enjoy it, feel it, get to know it well. Every little square has its own origin, its own story just like every book of the Old Testament does. But what I'm suggesting is that we will miss the forest for the trees if all we do is look at each individual piece of fabric on its own. But that God didn't just inspire books, He inspired a book that He's given to us in a certain way. We're called to study and delight in the overall pattern and structure of the whole. Each part seemed together to display something more wonderful than the parts themselves. So focusing on the whole structure of the Old Testament, not just the individual parts. So I pondered, what could I do to just try to help capture this a little bit? Here's one example. We begin to see individual pictures. We begin to see them as individual realities having no idea that they're even tied together but all of a sudden we see some things that overlap and we wonder oh does, does this all go together is this all one picture I could focus just on a tree or just on the rocks or just on the hill and all of a sudden I might miss that there's something a whole picture that's being framed here or we could go another route Because all this is is one image. But the Bible's more than that, it actually tells a story. Now, every individual part of your lives has been a story. You might look at Jason and say, Oh, yeah, I know Jason. But did you know that the way that I met Teresa's parents was by totaling her car? The whole engine got shifted, and because of that, it was totaled. I could walk through and say, oh yeah, there was two people that enjoyed dating, and then we got married, moved to Indiana, went on our first camping trip, and I didn't know how to start a fire. It created problems. We moved to Massachusetts, we were there for five years, enjoyed New England in the fall. Then we moved to Indiana, a young family being shaped. God help me finish my PhD. Then we moved to Minnesota. 45-foot jump that I took there at Temperance River. Our kids began to grow. I met Northwestern ministering, and God called us away from Northwestern to Bethlehem College and Seminary. We've had family moments. God moved us to adopt. The first child we ran after, we didn't get to bring home. But God brought us Ezra. Boundary waters. My grand canyon adventure. North shore adventures as a family. (laughs) Then back to Africa for our fourth time. And God brings us our twins. And then we have six. All of this works together to shape a big story that every individual part misses. But together, there's something even more beautiful than every individual saga, and every one of our lives have it. And what's amazing is that the master storyteller has written each one of our big stories into his massive story. And we don't want to miss the big story by just looking at the little stories. All of it works together and makes a family. And from the scriptural perspective, it's a kingdom family. God reigning over God's people. In a context, God's land, all for God's glory. He's creating a kingdom. So why is it important? The Bible presents itself not as a shelf of numerous fabrics, but as a unified, intentionally woven quilt stitched together by a master designer. So the call for each one of us is to focus not only on individual books, but to consider their message in light of the three-part canon. Number two, to understand the Bible, we need to understand that It's a story that frames the Bible. In the Old and in the New Testaments, Old Testament on the top, New Testament on the bottom, but in the order of Jesus' Bible, as it comes to us, it's framed by story. That should influence how we read this. Even the commentary books, the white ones, they are fronted and followed by story ultimately the bible is a story book and it moves us from a garden sorry a garden to a garden through the first marriage between adam and eve to the climactical marriage between the ultimate last adam and his bride to the serpent's overcoming of that first couple To the serpents being overcome by the ultimate couple, Christ, and the church crushing the head of the serpent. It's the story. The Old Testament is shaped by story. The New Testament is shaped by story. And that story's plot line, as I've tried to synthesize it, is God's kingdom through covenant for God's glory in Christ Jesus. That's what the story tells us. So when we're reading our scriptures, when we're doing our devotions, we want to try to think, how does what I'm reading fit within the story? How does it contribute to the story? If I was to take out what I'm reading from the storyline, what would be lost? Both the Old and New Testaments are framed by a storyline that relates the progressive development of God's kingdom through covenant for His glory in Christ. And that story's primary character is God. We miss this, and far too many preachers fail to recognize this when they go to stories. So how many David and Goliath stories have you heard where the focus is on be like David? Or how about, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. Something like that. I don't know. But the ultimate goal of Scripture is not to disclose who we are or who we should be, but who He is. And in light of who He is, what that demands of us. So we need to be careful that when we're reading the stories, and the story is the dominant genre... Even the individuals like whom we should be are only that way because they are people who make much of God. He's the dominant figure who shows up all the way through every story. He's the main actor. Also, the story's plotline is all about the hope of a curse overcoming deliverer. Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. Go learn what he said. A curse overcoming Messiah who would establish peace and reconcile the world to himself. It's about the Messiah and missions. We saw that two weeks ago. Number three, to understand the Bible's message fully, we can't just read a story because the Bible gives us more than a story. It also gives us commentary. There's the parts in yellow, but then there's the parts in white. So we start out with Adam and Eve in the garden, And we move all the way through God making promises to Abraham in light of the fall that through him the world would be blessed. God sets apart a people who end up in Egypt. Then they come out of Egypt. God gives them graciously the law. He sends them to the land. They get settled in the land. They ask for kings. Kings rise, kings fall. The kingdom is separated. And all of a sudden, just like Adam and Eve got kicked out of their paradise, now Israel, both northern kingdom and southern kingdom, are kicked out of their paradise and the story stops. Then we get the latter prophets. We found out what happened in the history of the covenant. The latter prophets tell us why it happened. These are the preachers during this period, and now they're unpacking for us the voices of God that were speaking during the midst of the story. Then we move into the writings, and everything shifts in tone. We move from overwhelming darkness with a little bit of light to lots of hope, explicit hope. And specifically, practical books about how do I live in a very dark world. We need both of these. We need the preachers. We need those who are crying out in their pain to teach us how to live. But then, all of a sudden, with lamentations, we move back into the storyline and we get, we're in exile, that's where we left off, and the storyline continues. And now, God is king over all and he's going to be. Prove himself to be king over all the kingdoms of the world. And even though, Esther, even though it looks like this people that God has set apart as a channel of blessing might get thwarted, God will not let it happen because promises are at stake. And then God brings them back to the land in Ezra and Nehemiah, but it's not the ultimate redemption. And so Chronicles ends saying, keep looking, keep looking, and the story continues. We turn the page and it picks right up again. Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And now we get four different chronicles of the life, death, burial, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ as the ultimate one that all the world has been hoping for. He is the curse overcoming Messiah and because He is risen from the dead and death is conquered, missions happens. And all of a sudden we move into the book of Acts and the church begins to go global as the temple of God begins to fill the earth taking the glory of God to the ends as the waters cover the sea. And all of a sudden, what humanity was created for, to display God, to image God, begins to happen in the book of Acts. And the church gets bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, Rome gets taken. And Spain is in anticipation. God's glory is filling the earth through His people, who are merely agents of Jesus. And then we pause again. And we get commentary about the letters that were being written, the pastoral encouragement and challenges that were being shared during this period of expansion. And Paul begins to talk pastorally to his people, much like the prophets began to speak into their context. But everything has changed because now there's hope. The Spirit of God is at work. Whereas in the Old Testament it was darkness, and the Spirit was there, but only physically, externally. And He wasn't working in the hearts of the majority. But now He is. Every covenant member has been captured by the glory of Jesus, and is willing to share, and is willing to suffer for His name's sake. Paul says if someone's not living this way, then they should be kicked out because they're not part of the covenant. And then we come to Hebrews. The books start big in Romans, they move all the way small, and then they start big again in Hebrews, and then it moves small again all the way to Jude. That's exactly how the Old Testament structure was. The, former, the latter prophets, biggest book Jeremiah, all the way down to the Twelve, and then former writings, Psalms is the biggest book, all the way back down to Lamentations. Same type of pattern in the New Testament. And in Hebrews now, in the general epistles, Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude, the commentary just continues. It's the... It's challenges to the church. Keep persevering. Even when everything looks bad, it might be a life like Job. It might be a life like the Lamenter and Lamentations. That might be where you're at. You might have rebellious kids like Proverbs. You might not have a marriage that's working like in Song of Songs. And you need instruction. How do I do it? How do I keep going? And the call is you can find joy. You can find satisfaction that will not let you go. Keep going. Persevere. Even in the midst of the greatest amount of suffering, because the story hasn't finished. And then we move to Revelation. And the story picks up again. It picks up The church has been expanding in the book of Acts and all of a sudden Revelation comes at the end and it takes the story of the church. It puts us right in the middle of it all the way up until consummation comes between the first appearing and the last appearing of Christ. And when He comes again, it will not be His suffering servant but His conquering King. All evil will be put down. Your pain and mine, if you have entrusted your life to Him, will be remedied and we will find our hearts satisfied, our joy complete forever. So when we look at the Bible, we read a storyline that you and I find ourselves in, but we can't just read a storyline. We have to recognize that there's commentary that matters. And we have to fit the commentary into the story. That's why this is significant, this structure. Last, to know Jesus as He intended to be known, hear that. To know Jesus as He intended to be known, we should look at the Old Testament the way He did through this three-part structure and in order to find a kingdom message of Messiah and missions these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you so he's teaching during his life before his death this is what I taught you guys I want to know what he taught them he summarizes it here that everything written about me in the law of Moses in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled and then it goes on. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. What's the Scriptures right there? The Old Testament. First Peter wasn't written yet. Paul hadn't written anything to Titus. Jesus has just been raised from the dead. It's in that 40-day window between his resurrection and his ascension. And this is what he said. He, un- he opens their mind to understand the Scriptures. What? I want to understand it too. What should I be looking for when I go to the Old Testament? How can I read it the way Jesus wanted me to read it? Here it is. Thus it is written in the Old Testament. But not just general in the Old Testament. Through the law, through the prophets, through the Psalms. That's Jesus' lens. And I'm proposing that if we read it this way, we might get something out of Chronicles coming at the end of the canon that we might miss if we read it after Kings. That if we read Ruth, not after Judges, but before the Psalms and after the Minor Prophets, we might read Ruth in a fresh new way that would point us more to Jesus than if we read it after Judges. That's what I'm proposing that Jesus intended, when He opened up the Scriptures for them, He opened it up through the lens of the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And this is what He found. Thus it is written that the Christ, that is the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It's written, that's written back there. That there there would be a Messiah, this royal, curse overcoming deliverer, who Himself would have to suffer. "...but on the third day He would rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem." So that provides me a lens. When I go to the Old Testament, and when I teach this class, this is a test case for you. When you sit in this class, do you hear about the Messiah? And do you hear about missions? The Kingdom of God is about the Messiah, and it's about missions. That's how Jesus summarized what he was about. I'm here to preach the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. And then he summarizes it this way. It's about the Messiah and it's about missions. So it captures for me what the Old Testament, how I'm, I think I'm supposed to read the Old Testament. A law prophet's writings framework. And when I approach it, I'm to find the Messiah. And I'm supposed to celebrate missions. Because missions exist because the glory of God doesn't. But it will. And one day missions will stop and worship will last forever. There's where we're at. Brother David. Is there a uh, scripture in the Old Testament that says Christ would rise from the dead on the third day? Hmm. Yeah, that's a very good question. Jesus said it's written back there that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The challenge is that there's no explicit text that ever says the Messiah will rise on the third day. But Jesus says it's there. So then we have to say, okay, when Jesus said that, he's not looking at one specific text. He's putting things together that together teach that this figure of Messiah would rise on the third day. And I'll I'll just say briefly, I would love to be able to take time for myself and for you to unpack that. But let me throw out a few things. Daniel chapter 12 talks about the nation of Israel being resurrected on the last day. Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 6 say the servant's name who would ultimately suffer in Isaiah 53. The servant's name is Israel. And then it says that the mission of Israel is to bring back Jacob and to restore Israel. Isaiah 49 5. The servant's name is Israel and the mission of Israel is to restore Israel. And it's too light a thing for you to just restore Israel, Israel. I will make you a light into the nations, so that all those to the coastlands might hear of my fame. Jesus is is Israel. He embodies, he's the son of David, and as the king, he represents the whole. He's also... The supreme human. He's called the last Adam. He embodies what humanity was supposed to be. We call it, in technical terms, corporate solidarity. So in Daniel chapter 12, it says, all the nation is to rise from the dead. In Daniel 7, one like a son of man came in the clouds of glory and approached the ancient of days. And this son of man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, is given all authority in heaven and on earth. And then in the interpretation it unpacks it, not pointing it to a person, but to the people. That the entire nation is now given authority by God. So as I put, I'm putting these things together, this is just a taste. It's suggesting to me that the way that we understand that Christ is to rise from the dead is directly connected to all the promises that the nation of Israel would be restored, as in life from the dead at, in the restoration. And that Jesus is Israel who does in His body what the nation will do corporately in its spiritual resurrection. But there's more than that because this third day issue shows up all throughout Scripture. It was a three day journey after Jonah experienced his deliverance. It was a three-day journey to Nineveh. Three days. Just type in three days into your little concordance and then ask yourself, why, is, why does so many things happen in three days? It's a three-day journey from this picture of redemption happening to Jonah to the point when he proclaims the gospel to the Ninevites. Jesus takes on himself as the sign of Jonah. That's what he declares and that he is going to be like one who's been in a tomb and is resurrected from the dead like Jonah was portrayed in the belly of the fish and resurrected from the dead. And then he goes and talks to a people who live in the city of the fish. That's what Nineveh means, the city of the fish. Their god, chief god was a fish goddess and Jonah shows up and wins. He's beaten the fish. And that three-day journey, in my mind, it seems to me to be playing into this resurrection theme that it was a three-day period of lesson for Jonah, a three-day experience of his own redemption, something like that. Um, I haven't wrestled this down thoroughly, but I'm at least giving you my trajectories of how I see the Old Testament teaching That the Son of Man, that the Christ would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. His suffering is very clear, Isaiah 53 being the most evident text. And then that that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to the nations. Through you, Abraham, all the world will be blessed. And the call is... Be restored to God. And then the prophets pick up on that and they just say, Return! 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 Repent! For the kingdom of God is at hand. So, that would be my initial response. Ah, uh, It's a very fair question. So, the question is, why did the Holy Spirit allow our English Bibles, allow the church, to put our English Bibles in the order that they did? If it was wrong. That's, that's what I'm proposing. There's a history behind it. Um, But specifically, why did the Holy Spirit allow it to happen? Um, It must have something to do with the glory of God. (laughs) (laughs) That God would receive great glory in spite of the church missing it. And in light of the church, seeing it. In the same way that the Holy Spirit can allow each one of us to have seasons of missing it. And then when our lights go off, we revel in the glory of God all the more. I could go into more, but I'll stop there for the moment. That it does. Um, And that's partly what I'm asking for is to enter into a pursuit of knowing Jesus through this lens and see long term how it enhances your own knowledge of Him your own knowledge of His work in time, your own understanding of individual books. And I know at least in my own heart, um, it has, I feel like, been an instrument to help me know God more. Um, Just to have a structure to understand this isn't just a whole bunch of 66 books that I've got to get my hands around, but that there's there's things that I can understand about how the Bible holds together that can be tools to help me understand it better. And they appear to have been tools that God gave us in not just inspiring books, but in putting things in the order He did. This has been a five-year project, this book right here. And uh, the Lord is allowing it. It'll be out this spring, Lord willing. And I just want you to know I wrote it for you. You were in my mind. I even put, I don't put your individual names. Some of you are in there because you read parts of it. Um, like those two sitting over there, that brother and sister-in-law. Um, their names are in there. But the... You're, you're in there in the sense that I wrote and to my Sunday school class at Bethlehem Baptist Church for whom I have written this survey. It's a message-driven, gospel-centered survey. It's not focused on content. It's not focused on background. It's focused on message. I want to meet God in this book. And it's thematic, meaning the top three to six things that every Old Testament author cared most about. And it walks through book by book through Jesus' Bible. So, something to anticipate. Now, what we've all been waiting for, the book of Samuel. That's where we're going. Samuel, after Judges. And so I want to just take our remaining seven minutes to set a context for our jumping into this fresh book, 1 and 2 Samuel, next week. As I mentioned, 1 and 2 Samuel originally was one book. It was just called Samuel. So it's different than 1 and 2 Thessalonians, which was actually two letters written by Paul. 1 and 2 Samuel is one book. In Hebrew, originally there was no vowels in the Hebrew text. They only wrote with consonants. So the vowels were all oral. So if you can think about it, when they translated a consonant-only text into Greek, like they did to make what we call the Septuagint, the Greek Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is called the Septuagint, used by the early church. And when they took a consonant-only Hebrew text and then added all the vowels in, the books got a lot longer and it required using more than one scroll. So 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles, all of those are just one book, not two. And so we read them as one book. One storyline, one message. Ezra Nehemiah is similar. Ezra Nehemiah in Jesus' Bible is not two books, it's only one. It's Ezra Nehemiah. And that influences our understanding of what the book's about too. So... I'm just wanting to refresh us, if we had just moved from Judges right into Samuel where we ended last spring, I wouldn't have had to do what I'm about to do in the next now five minutes. I won't get it all done. But let's just set a context. Number one, when we read the history of the covenant we always have to remember the covenant. That means we're always thinking back through Moses to understand the details of the story. Often the narrator doesn't say, Saul's looking really bad here. There's no sign that's screaming that. Instead, it's a, he, the writer's expecting us to read the story in light of the covenant. And the biggest, whoops, one second. The biggest, most central claim of that covenant is hero Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, and you shall love Him with all. The all command. And basically it means that we can't have any closet of our life that hasn't been opened up to the Lord. Everything is supposed to get cleaned. The light is supposed to reach every corner of our being. We can't be running from God. He knows. Love Him with all your heart, all your being, and all your substance. It starts in the beginning, everything internal, love God with that. Then it moves out to our entire being. Love God with all that we are, the words that we speak, the actions that we do. And then love God with all of your substance, which moves beyond us and would include the house we live in and the friends that we keep, the music we listen to and the movies we watch. Love God with all. Number two, background to the book of Samuel. We won't understand Samuel unless we understand how bad judges got. It was ugly back there. It is dark, perhaps the darkest book in the Old Testament. And it apparently happened in a single generation. And a generation arose that did not know God or the works that He had done. It's scary. Here's the refrain that we get six times. Remember, there's six judges in the book. And there's these cycles. The same story over and over again, but it's not just the same story. It gets worse every time. But every time in Judges 3, 7, 3, 12, 4, 1, 6, 1, 10, 6, and 13, 1... That's where the stories begin, and every story begins with this statement. The people did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. Six times you read that in the story. And every time it's transitional, it leads us into a new judge. Here's what we read whenever the Lord raised up judges for them Yahweh was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them so they sin God sends enemies then they groan and God's moved to pity so he sends them a judge to deliver them but whenever the judge died They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. That is the story of Judges. And what's God's response? Judges chapter 2.15 Whenever they marched out, so the enemy would come in, Israel would move out. They're trying to stop the enemy intrusion, whatever enemy that was in the cycles. Whenever they marched out, the hand of God was against them. You don't want that to be your story. This is how God was treating His people. Not because He was an ornery old coot, but because He was faithful to His promises. Because discipline matters. And a parent who doesn't discipline their child when they're straying is not a loving parent. Because God had made promises not only of blessing but of curse. Look at what it says. The hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn, and they were in terrible distress. God had promised them already. And I read that and I say, When? When did He promise them? I'm reading Judges. And it says, God swore to them that if they ran from him, they would know his judgment. And now we read, just as he sworn, and that's all that it gives us. Any idea where I might look to find out when he swore it? Where? When he made the covenant. Good idea. So here's Deuteronomy. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. But our God is also one who repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. Now let's think about the book of Samuel. Where does Samuel begin? This will set a context. This is covenant talk. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that He swore to your fathers. You shall be blessed, key word, blessed above all the peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And then we read this at the beginning of Samuel. Elkanah had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children and Hannah had no children. That's verse 2 of the book and the author is going out of his way to give us a signal that the darkness and the curse that was being experienced in the book of Judges is continuing because the blessing is not being enjoyed and the opposite of blessing is curse. God had said if you're faithful, no barren and now Hannah is barren and that's a signal to us not per se, that Hannah has a problem. But that she's living in a cursed community. That's how we begin to read Samuel. This is a book that must be understood in light of the darkness of the book of Judges. That's what I'm getting at. And we read it through the lens of the covenant. And the covenant had promised blessing or curse dependent on whether the people were trusting in God or not. If you run from life There's only one way you can go. There's only two options. You're either trusting the life giver, the life maker, or if you're going in the other way, it's death. And death is happening at the beginning of Samuel. There's another refrain with, this is all part of the debauchery of judges, and I will pick up there next week. I'll pick up there, and it'll lead us right into the introduction of the book. Pray with me. Lord, as we finally get to move into your biblical text, not just looking at its structure, but hearing its voice, I pray that the Messiah would be exalted in our hearts, and that it would move us to missions. May the kingdom be realized in us and through us. It's what you want. You've already testified to it. And so we just want to discover it. We want to taste it. We want to experience it for us. We want to know the satisfaction that comes when you're on the throne of our hearts. Overcoming our despondency and our anxieties. Our proneness to anger to a quick tongue rather than quick listening. Our proneness to laziness. You died that it might be overcome. Our proneness to passivity or aggression. Our proneness to selfishness. Our proneness to all forms of waywardness. We don't want that, God. So please show up Make much of Jesus in working in our hearts. May the rest of this term not be an experience where our ears are closed, but our bottoms are warm. But may we be moved by the power of Your Word. And may we leave week after week changed people. It'll only happen if Your Spirit shows up. So may the Spirit of the resurrected Christ move in this place. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.